All right. So the title to tonight's message is The Sexual Revolution, Homosexuality, and the Attack on Marriage. And, uh, and we're right now in the, in, we're pretty much going full stream on, on this, through in this series on marriage. And, and I'm calling this a series on marriage, not necessarily a series on dating, even though many of you are single and look, and, or dating. I'm calling this a, a series on marriage because in order to date well, we must have a good perspective of what marriage is. And, and in our first sermon, we talked about we talked about what a biblical marriage is about, what a God-ordained marriage entails of. Um, and, and, and last time when you guys met, I wasn't here, but Pastor Hanley spoke, and he spoke on, on what a biblical family looks like because a biblical marriage is a start of a biblical family. But in our culture today, there is an attack on, on what the Bible teaches as as the way we are to be married and the way we are to raise our family. And there's an attack against these things. And that attack comes in, um, in the form of different ways. There's, there's a lot of different ideologies and, and ways of thinking that continues to attack the biblical image of marriage and family. And so that's why I want to spend some time talking about it. I want to talk about the dangers. I want to spend some time talking about what is going on in our world today and why it's so important for us as Christians, as the church, to stand firm on what God wants from our marriages in our family. Just to kind of review the schedule a little bit. Um, so we're, we're right now in the third sermon of the series. And for this sermon and for the next one, we'll be talking about homosexuality and transgenderism. And, and my hope in these, two, in these two sermons is to be able to present to you guys the, the dangers of the world around us and why, it, why following their philosophy will undermine what the biblical teaching of marriage and family is and ultimately undermine the gospel itself. My argument here is twofold. I, I want to first argue that the current LGBTQ agenda is built on philosophy that attacks God and the gospel. And the second thing that I want to argue for in these two messages is that the church's failure to uphold biblical faithfulness and sexuality is what allows the sexual revolution to gain influence upon God's people. And so it's important for us to hold to these truths. And as we get into this sermon tonight, I do want to make note of this. The sermon is about homosexuality. Next time we'll be talking about transgenderism, but I'm going to be talking about the cultural acceptance of these two realities. The cultural acceptance of it. I'm going to be talking about society at large, but I don't want to overlook that there may be some of you now on the Zoom call some of you guys who might be struggling with same-sex attraction or gender identity. And, and, and that's you. My, my heart goes out to you. It's wrestling with these, with, with, with your heart, with your emotions, with your desires, your identity. It, it's, it can get really, really difficult. 
right? Especially when the culture is telling you one thing, the church is telling you another, and, and it feels like you're constantly in a tug of war. And perhaps the greatest despair that you may have is that you feel like you can never change. And so I just want to have a quick word with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it says this, and this, this is hope for you who may be struggling with same-sex attraction or gender identity. It says here, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. There are two things I want to point out here real quick. First is that if you struggle with same-sex attraction or, or gender identity, notice here that that sin is on the same level as every other sin. All of them do not deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. But the hope is this, is that Paul here writes in verse 11 that such were some of you and he uses the past tense, were some of you, because now their identity is no longer based on their desires, but their identity is based on Christ who washes them, who sanctifies them, who justifies them. And that hope can be the same for you, that your identity no longer needs to be tied to this struggle, but that your identity can be free, free in Christ, free to know the Lord. And I can say more about this. This sermon, again, is not about how to counsel those who struggle with these things. But if you do struggle with these things, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to uh, the mentors that's on the Zoom call. Uh, and we will love to be able to talk with you, to counsel you, and to help you. But this sermon, this sermon is going to be dealing more with the current cultural acceptance of sexual immorality. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be digging through the sexual revolution. And we're going to be looking at why this revolution poses such a huge threat against God and against the gospel. And what I'm ultimately worried here about is not necessarily that there's a lot of sexual immorality going on. Because if you look throughout the history of humankind, there's always been sexual immorality. What I'm most worried about here is the ideology behind the, this cultural acceptance. Because this ideology is, is, is persuasive. It can influence our hearts if we're not careful. And, and we've seen churches get swept up in it. Many churches who support the LGBTQ movement or those who, who support same-sex marriage. But but not just that, but I believe in for conservative churches, for churches like ours, we can, if we're just pass, if we're just passive about what's going on in our culture today, we may end up passively following some of their ideology. And I want us to be careful of that. I want us to realize what's going on. 
take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Looking at verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul here writes, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, Paul here recognizes that philosophy of this world, the philosophy that, that this world promotes is not according to Christ. And it can draw our hearts away. And without knowing that we could be passively supporting their ideology. And we have to be careful of that. Instead, we must continue to battle because that is ultimately where what Christianity is fighting. We are fighting against any philosophy that goes against God. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting from verse 3, this is again the author, the Apostle Paul, he writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And, and, and what the strongholds here, what he's referring to here in verse 4, is the strongholds of the mind. And he's saying that the weapons that we have has divine power to destroy these strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We see here that we have to be constantly on the attack, constantly looking at what this world is trying to teach and, and discerning what is right and what is wrong, what is biblical and what is not. And for everything that is not biblical, for everything that, that is raised against the knowledge of God, we must attack it, to take captive of it and not allow that thought to take captive of us. And so I want us to be careful. I want us to realize what's going on in our culture today and how that may help us then, help us as Christian then pursue marriage in the biblical way. Pursue marriage in a way that's not following the ideologies of this world. We have to make sure that we are not giving the sexual revolution any reason of why they are right and we are wrong. We must show them that we stand on the side of truth. They do not. The, this, uh, sorry, this intro is going to be a little bit long. Because so I just want to be able to, sh to kind of show you guys what here I'm referring to, what I'm talking about. Let me go ahead and just review a little bit. Gosh, this is a diagram that I drew last time we talked about marriage. And, and, and starting from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I... I showed here how God has ordained marriage as the way that we are to live out our image that God has placed in us. And I broke down marriage here into four parts. I first noted first as God-centered. God is the one who ordains marriage so that we as male and female of humankind can represent God in our marriages. 
Second, I, I talked about how marriages are about a covenant. It's a covenant faithfulness, a faithfulness to each other, a, a lifelong faithfulness. And then that means there's a commitment, a commitment, a, a commitment that demonstrates our love for one another. And that commitment is what girds us together, that makes us one flesh in our marriages. And then we're talking about the husband and wife roles. And we'll get a little bit more into this next time. Um, but the husband and wife roles, again, is, is another part of us being, uh, being man and woman in a marriage. To be a husband and a wife and have these complementary roles that helps us be, to help us to work together as one flesh. And then the fourth aspect is, is sex. And, and sex and marriage is meant for two things. It's, it's, meant for, it's meant for the husband and the wife to express their love to each other in a physical way. And sex is a gift. It's a gift that, that raises, that, that, uh, that gives us extreme pleasure. And there's no denying that. But there's a second purpose to sex, which is procreation. And God has called humankind to, to multiply and fill these earth. And that's done through marriage and within marriage, sex and procreation. And as we take a look at this diagram, I want to remind you that this all comes again from Genesis 1 and 2. This is creation. This is how God wants us to image him. God says that he created us in his image. Male and female, he created all of us in his image. In other words, this is... This is the truth and the purpose of our existence, to image God and to worship him. And that's supposed to be done through marriage. But the sexual revolution has, has changed all that. It has changed the very definition of marriage. It is a, it's an attack against the creation order. And so what is then the sexual revolution? Now, if you, if you Google sexual revolution, you'll see that many, many historians will talk about the sexual revolutions of 1960s. And yes, that may be the time when people were actually talking about um, doing some kind of revolution against the, the traditional, um, I guess, aspects of marriage and sex. But I will argue that it is continuing so even today. And what the technical definition of this is, is this, that the sexual revolution is a, is, is a liberation. It's a movement that seeks to liberate established social and moral attitudes towards sex. It's to say that, there's, that we should all have the freedom to have sex with anyone or anything under any context. It's normalizing sexual morality. In other words, it's normalizing sin. It's to make something that, that the Bible deems as evil ordinary and and so when we see here that we when we go back to what god has called marriage to be and what he ordained marriage to be we we see here that god has made marriage as a way that we're supposed to image him and that was supposed to be the way we populate the earth and create a culture in the earth that represents god and worships him and that's what marriage was meant to do. It's meant to keep moral order. But the sexual revolution removes all that. It removes all those boundaries. It removes all these moralities that surrounded around marriage and sex. And by doing so, it has upheaved the institution of sex. And it has 
remove the notion of moral truth. I want to point out three major events, and this is not everything that contributed to the sexual revolution, but these are three events that I think are important to realize. Three major events that, that eliminate barriers that should have slowed down the sexual revolution. And the first thing I want to point out is the invention of the birth control pill. And, and, and the, the mention of birth control pill, what that means is that contraception is now cheap and easy to, to, uh, easy to access. And, and contraception itself is, you know, it, it, it's been available for a long time before this pill was created. And contraception itself is not a sin either. You know, I believe Christians can use birth control, but they must use it wisely. Um, they must be, they must have a good reason for doing so. But what this has done, this easy access to contraception, is that it has separated sex from procreation, separating sex from children, and thus moving away one of the main purposes of why God created sex. And what happens then is that when, when, when children is no longer a consequence of sex, sex then, society can take that, society can take that and make it, make it solely purposed to satisfy one's desires. This is the second major event that we should be aware of is the legalization of no-fault divorce. And, and divorce, and like contraception, is not new. But, but in America in the past, before the legalization of no-fault divorce in the 19, I believe it was like 1969 or so, before all that, divorce was a very long and complicated legal process. It was, it was really difficult to get a divorce because because um, the American government before was trying to make sure to keep the family together, to keep the marriage together. But when no-fault divorce was legalized, it effectively made divorce easy, easy and accessible for all marriage. And this then redefined marriage from a covenantal one to a contractual one. And the last major event I want us to keep in mind is the feminist movement. The feminist movement that fought to make man and woman equal in, at home, at the workplace, in society. And, and while, I, I, while I agree that women should have you know, equal rights within society, there still should be different roles within the home. But that's not what our culture teaches these days. In fact, our Western cultures have continued to push the boundaries of equality to the point where gender differences are something that's human made rather than something that's rooted in biological and psychological differences. And so what all this has done, and again, there, there's definitely more things that contributed to the sexual revolution. We can talk about pornography. We can talk about the psychotherapeutic movement. We can even talk about the changes in our work culture that all contributed to this. But what has happened is that we slowly see the definition of marriage, the biblical marriage being torn apart. We see that the pill removed procreation and family. We see that divorce has removed commitment in the marriage. And we see that gender, the fight for gender equality has removed the aspects of gender itself, the notions of husband and wife, man and woman in one flesh. And what this has done 
is that this has unhinged the sexual revolution to take on full force. But all these are different events. There's still the talk that I really wanna address. That I wanna focus on this message on this ideology of the sexual revolution. And that here is the main force, the undercurrent that pushes this movement forward. And it's this force that directly attacks God. And what is this force? It is the secularization, the secularization of Western culture, transforming Western culture from a religious one to a technological and scientific one. It's an ideology that removes God from the picture. And when you remove God, you remove the very notion of why we are created and placed here on earth. In the past, it was unthinkable to not believe in God, but in the present, it is now unthinkable to believe in the existence of any deity. What we see in our secular cultures today is that God is dead. This then brings us, brings us to our main passage that we're going to be looking at. You turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verse 18 to 32. And I know there's a lot of verses here, so I'm going to be trying to cover all these. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 32. And, and, and here's the, the big picture of this passage, the main point of this passage. is that the wrath of God is being poured out upon humanity. The wrath of God is being poured out upon humanity because humankind, humans, have sinned and rejected God. And this passage here speaks about the dangerous effects of sin. And one of those effects, as Paul will, as we will see later, explicitly pointed out by Paul, is homosexual behavior and the cultural approval of it. Let's first read verse 18. Verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We, we, we see here that says that the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. And, and what we get here is that the word revealed is, is in the present tense. It means that the wrath of God is presently, right now, being revealed against all sin. This is a statement that we all need to hear. This is a statement that's about us. Right? Paul here, he's writing to the Roman church that's consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. And his point here, he's saying that everyone, no matter what ethnic group you belong to, no matter what culture you grew up in, no matter what experiences you may have in your life, believers and unbelievers, everyone, everyone is under the wrath of God if they are in sin. Paul then states the reason. He says that the men, these men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. And what the truth is, is that the truth is truth. It means that whatever, whatever this truth is here that Paul here is talking about is the one thing that's real. And everything else that goes against this truth, everything else that is not this truth, is therefore a lie. Truth 
is singular and truth cannot be denied. Truth cannot be destroyed. But what happens here is that truth can be suppressed. It can be denied. It can be distorted. It can be hidden away. Ultimately, that is what sin does. Sin distorts God's good creation and uses it for his own purposes. And what I want us to understand from verse 18 is that we are all being held accountable here. Every time you sin, whether you lied, whether you may have bouts of anger, whether you're looking at pornography, you are suppressing the truth of God. But that's not it. Suppressing the truth of God, sinning, our sins have consequences, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us. We have to remember that. We have to remember that our sin all have consequences. And just think about it. Adam, the first man, he sinned. And what happens? The rest of humanity are now in depravity. And so for the rest of this passage, what I want to show you is the five stages by which Sin suppresses the truth of God. And these five stages will demonstrate the progression of sin, not just in our life, but in our society as well. And I want to argue that these five stages are being played out right now in our Western society today. And so first stage after being suppression of truth is the suppression of true reality. Suppression of true reality, looking at verse 19 and 20, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his, inv- his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, many of us may read these two verses, and we, we think about the mountains, the seas, we think about the rising and setting sun, and we look upon this intricate design that God has made here on this beautiful earth, and we think about the cycle of life, and, and we say, yes, that all points to God, natural theology. And you're right, those things all do point to God. But how many of us, when we read these two verses, have considered that us, humans, humans also portray God. In fact, we should portray God even more because God created us in his image. Consider what humankind has done throughout history. The great nations and societies we have built. The way we have multiplied and filled this earth. Think about the laws we've created. And think about how all of us, we all have some kind of pursuit of happiness. Think about the way we try to seek purpose in our life. Just the cognitive ability to, to have a conscience, to think in this way. There is something so unique about who we are as human beings. Something that's so unique and so beautiful about us that all points to God as well because we are the only creatures here on earth that are created in the image of God and this includes marriage and and and, and the institution of marriage between a man and a woman 
I mean, just think about a man and woman. Think about the design of a, of a male and a female. Think about the design of their genitalia. The concept of a union between a man and a woman and holy matrimony comes natural. It just, it's, it's right. Human marriage also points to God. And these truths are evident in every society. They're intrinsic in every human being. And therefore, no one, no one has an excuse. Every person is created to know God. The very reality of this world points to an almighty God who created all things. And this God deserves every ounce of glory we can give him. This, this is why we have to be careful of our philosophy. Think, for instance, think, for instance, about the theory of evolution. And I'm not saying that the evolution is the main cause of why we see the sexual revolutions happening, but, but there are factors and principles being taught in evolution that helps bolster the argument for homosexuality and for transgenderism. Because when, if we are to root our existence back to monkeys and argue that our cognitive thinking that we can do is just an evolutionary process, if we conclude our origins have nothing to do with God, then the logical conclusion is that we should remove these moral principles that we made up around sexuality. It means that evolution looks upon our bodies, this, this bones and flesh, and that's it. That's all our bodies, our bodies are just material, just atoms. There's, there's no moral purpose to them all. That's what evolution teaches us. And therefore, if sex is just a part of nature and sex is a part of every creature here on earth, then why should we regulate it? Why create moral principles? Why have marriage? It's dangerous when we make our bodies a neutral moral ground for us to do whatever we want with it. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Bodies, she writes this. She says, if nature does not reveal God's will, then it is a morally neutral realm where humans may impose their will. And that's dangerous which leads us to our second stage of suppression, the suppression of true glory. Starting from verse 21, Paul here continues to write, he says, for, <clears throat> for although they knew God, they did not honor him, ask God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Note what happens when we suppress the truth of God in reality. You become futile in your thinking. Your hearts become darkened. You see, when you believe that there is a God and he created the universe, he created all of us with a design and a purpose, that becomes a solid foundational ground for our existence. 
for understanding why things are the way they are. But when you remove God, you're removing a pin that holds all things together and all of it unravels. You lose all foundation of logic. It unravels our understanding of history, of truth. And all that can become whatever we want it to be. Pay attention to verse 23. In verse 23, Paul here says that, that, that those who are unrighteous exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal, mortal man. Look at this verse. Paul here tells us that men who reject God exchange the glory of this amazing, incorruptible God for an image of a corruptible, mortal man. In writing this verse, Paul here is alluding to Psalm 106.20. And Psalm 106.20 says this, speaking of Israel, they exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. This Psalm here, Psalm 106, speaks against the Israelites who forgot about God, forgot that God is the one who saved them from slavery. And instead of worshiping God, they worshiped a golden calf. Paul's alluding to the Psalm and he's expanding upon it. Paul here is saying that every sinner from every nation when they rebel against God, they are performing idolatry. They're performing idolatry. And this, is, this stems all the way back to Genesis 3. When, when Satan tempted Eve, he told her to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And when, when they do that, they will become like God. And yet, Adam and Eve forgot they forgot or they choose to ignore the fact that they were created in the image of God. Even though they were created in the image of God, Satan said, no, that is not enough. By eating this fruit, you can actually become God. That they can exchange the glory of God in, their, the glory of God in them for their own glory. And so Eve looked upon this tree, looked upon this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says in Genesis 3 that when she saw the fruit, it was desirable to make one wise. And then we read here in Romans 1, 22, claiming to be wise. Claiming to be wise, Adam and Eve took the fruit, ate it, and they became fools. Have we fallen down the same path of foolishness? Have we exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for something far less significant? Just take a look at this passage here. Take a look at how it all starts. In verse 21, it says, For though they, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. They did not honor him. They did not give thanks to him. Meaning they did not acknowledge God as the creator of all things. And when we forget that God is the creator and all that we are are creatures, we begin to think that we are masters of this world. That this world wasn't given to us. This world belongs to us. When you remove God from the picture, 
It means that we are not held to a higher being. It means that we can use whatever we have in this world for our own advantage without any consequences. And that's exactly what the sexual revolution is trying to do. They, 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 they seek to teach that sex is just a self-expression of love. That who we are as human beings is not some higher, who we are as human beings is not what God tells us to be. Instead, who we are as human beings is defined by our inner self. Did they call it the authentic self, that the, that the expression that we have? And, and they argue that the, our sexual orientation, our sexual orientation is, ex, is an expression of our authentic self. It's, it's who we are. It's our identity. We see here that the revolution's goal is not just to legalize same-sex marriage. Their goal is to remove all moral boundaries you can have around sex itself because they argue that these moral boundaries stops you from expressing your authentic self. And so all these rules that we have, these traditions, the stigmas, the taboos around sex, and they call that oppression, that, that we had to free ourselves. And so marriage itself has to go. The institution of marriage is an oppressive institution. And what happens is that, what happens is that the glory of God that was meant to be portrayed in marriage, that glory of God has now been exchanged and replaced with the glory of man who only seeks to fulfill his or her personal desires. And so we see here Romans 1 playing out. And ultimately what is happening here is that this is how Satan attacks the church. This is how Satan attacks God. Satan is deceiving the world to worship the creature and not the creator, which leads us to our third suppression, which is the suppression of true worship. Suppression of true worship. Read with me from verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Three times in this passage, and, and this whole passage of Verses 18 and 32, three times Paul says that God gave sinners over. And here in verse 24 is the first time. God gave them over to impurity. God gave them over to impurity. And that the word gave over, it's used extensively to, to refer to captivity. It means that you're being given over or handed over, delivered into the hands of another person. And this other person is the one who's in power. And so what, what Paul here is saying then, he's saying that Paul, God is giving unrighteous people over to the captivity of their sins. And what we have to understand here is that sin is not freedom. Sin is enslaving. Sin is enslavement. And God is giving the unrighteous over to the captivity of sin. And this is the wrath of God that's being revealed. 
that this is God's response to their rejection of him. And what we see in our society today from, from the LGBTQ movement, from abortion clinics to divorce parties, to the celebration of all these different immoralities, all of this is the wrath of God being revealed. This is God allowing those who rebel against him to be enslaved to their sin. And so in some way or form, we shouldn't be surprised at what's going on in our world today. Verse 25, verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here they're following the path of Adam and Eve, who listened to the serpent's lie instead of the truth of their maker. And we have to understand that back in the Garden of Eden, when Satan deceived Adam and Eve, their, Satan's lie was not just a mere fib. He wasn't just telling, he wasn't like a salesman just trying to sell them something. Satan's lie was a direct attack against God and his design of creation. There's something in Genesis uh, that theologians call, theologians call it the, <clears throat> the creation order. Uh, what, what this means is that there's an order to creation. There, there's a structure. And what that looks like is this, is that first God is there, right? God is the creator. He exists. He's non-dependent on anyone. And he created man. And when I talk about here man, I'm talking about humankind, but I'm talking about man, a male person, Adam. He created man, created him, gave him breath. And then from man, he created woman. From the rib of Adam, he created Eve. So Adam was created first and Eve second. This becomes an order that becomes, that's important for us to understand when we talk about gender roles, gender roles in, in marriage as well as in the church. And we'll get more about that later on in this series. And then God tells man and woman that they are to fill the earth and subdue it. Meaning they are to have dominion over all the creatures on the earth. And so this is the creation order that God ordained when he first created everything. But look at what Satan does. Satan's order is a complete flipped opposite way around. Satan, he came in the form of a serpent. So he's a creature on the earth. And Adam and Eve listened to them. But notice who Satan first deceives. He deceives the woman. And from by deceiving the woman, the woman then tastes the fruit and eats it. And Adam, the man, followed her. And in the end, in their sin, in their shame, instead of acknowledging God as their maker, they hid from God himself. And this is what's happening in our world today. Right, when we talk about this the sexual revolution and reason why people promote homosexuality, why people say that we are to allow our sexual desires to define who we are is because many of them, many of these so-called experts are looking at animals and they're looking at animal behavior as a way to justify the way we should live our lives. That they're studying the lives of monkeys and apes and, and they argue that we should build communities like theirs. This is essentially what the sexual revolution is teaching us. 
that that if our sexual orientation is really just an animalistic instinct, then that should be who we are. We should allow that to be lived out. And this worldview, this worldview we see here does more than redefine marriage. It does more than that. It suppresses God and redefines who we are as human beings. It tells us that we do not become, we, we do not come from a spiritual origin. It tells us that a human being stems from an earthly origin. And so it seeks to abolish marriage. And it argues that marriage was a man-made institution created long ago by a patriarchal system. They will argue that we've outgrown that, that we've evolved beyond that. They will seek to destroy marriage altogether as long as marriage poses a threat to your sexual freedom. This depraved worldview departs from who we truly are. And I'm speaking to all of us, whether we're a Christian or not, we are all human beings created in the image of God. We are all created to worship God. Marriage was an institution designed by God as a way to glorify him. When we look about, when we look about our bodies, our desires, our thoughts, our lives, they're all meant to worship God. This is not lowering our, our, our thoughts about the body, this is elevating our view of our bodies to understand that we are all created with a unique and divine purpose to image God and worship him. But the sexual revolution has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And as a result, they worship the creature instead of the creator, which leads us to the suppression of true nature. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Here we have an explicit condemnation against homosexuality. And what we see here is that homosexuality is a result of a fallen world that has stopped worshiping God. It's a result of a godless ideology. And again, we see here in this passage in verse 26 that this is God moving. God is the one who gave them up. Right? God in his wrath gave the unrighteous over to their dishonorable passions. And what we see in our culture today as a celebration of homosexuality and all other sexualities, what we see in our culture today is a display of God's wrath against unrighteousness. And so homosexuality, and as we will see next time about transgenderism, both of them are products of idol worship. They are an hour expression of mankind's rebellion against God and his design. I want us to take a look here at, at verse 25 and 20, at verse 26. We take a look at verse 26. It says here that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And Paul here is not just condemning the act of homosexuality, 
He's condemning the homosexual desires as well. In other words, everything about homosexuality, from the behavior even to the passing thought about it, is unnatural, dishonorable, and an abomination to God. Let's think about this as we're dealing with our culture today. Right, they, they argue that our sexual orientation should be our identity, and there's nothing we can do to change that. And this kind of thinking, this thinking that we cannot change, that we are who we are, has infiltrated the church as well. Many people, many people who call themselves Christians, they're, they're, and they struggle with same-sex attraction, they call themselves a gay Christian. They use that label, a gay Christian. They say that's their identity. But we have to recognize that this label, this identity is, is a contradiction. It's saying that you align yourself with God and yet you also align yourself with the sin that God hates. It's the same as saying that you are a selfish Christian or you are an angry Christian or you are a lying Christian. Now, when I say this, don't, don't get me wrong. I, we all, as Christians, we all still struggle with sinful desires. As born-again believers, we still have sinful temptations. But we have to remember that when we are born again, when we believe and when we have given up our life and gave our life to Jesus Christ, it means that our identity in Christ is in Our identity of our life is in Him, is in Christ alone. And, and our identity then cannot be mixed with our old flesh. We are to put our old self off in order to put on the new. We are to deny our old sinful identity to claim our new identity in Christ. And what this means is that, yes, we still struggle with sin. Yes, we still have sinful temptation, desire. And, and we may still struggle with anger. We may be tempted to lie. We have lustful desires. And yes, for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, that may still be there even if when you have believed in Christ. The thing is this. Every time we have those desires, every time we have those sinful desires, we are to confess them to God. Go to the cross. Repent and ask the Holy Spirit for strength to walk in the way of the Lord. That's what it means to have identity in Christ. It's not to identify yourself with your old sins, but to walk with, in your identity in Christ. The last stage I will see here is the suppression of true morality. Verse 28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
we have to realize that when we reach this point, when we reach this point, it's not just about then allowing for homosexual acts, right? That the LGBTQ agenda is more than just redefining marriage. They, because if it's just that, and if you think about it, they have won already, right? The, the legalization of same-sex marriage should have just been their victory. And yet we still see them attack churches, attack Christians, still attacking the biblical norms and traditions of marriage and family. Why is that? It's because their agenda desires to remove all moral boundaries. They want to, they want to suppress and remove the very notion of God from the picture. And, and what happens what happens in the end is that it leads to this picture of immorality, of sin, full of it. The list here that we just read, I don't have time to go through every practice, but we get the picture here. Sin leads to anarchy and chaos. There is no longer any kind of order. The moral boundaries are abolished and people are free to pursue whatever their sinful hearts desire. But note here in verse 32 as well, that the condemnation is not just for those who do such things. The condemnation here is also laid upon those who give approval to those who do such things. Meaning churches who support same-sex marriage, churches who allow for homosexuality, they too are underneath this condemnation. What we see here is an undoing of God's creation, an undoing of God's created order. And this is why the church must continue to stand. Within the church, we, are, we have to safeguard marriages. We have to protect our people. We have to prevent society from coming in and infiltrating our church doors. We need to provide a place where we can teach the morals of marriage and family to children. We need to raise our youth up in a place where God can be worshiped, that he is center of their lives. We must uphold marriage and we must live it out in this world so that we become a light in this world. We must never look like this world. Remember that we are here on earth so that we can be a witness to the truth, be a witness to the light. And therefore, as a church, we must continue to teach and live out what it means to uphold a biblical marriage for the rest of the world to see. And at this point, let me turn now this sermon. Thank you for being with me this far. Let me turn the sermon to his final bend. So I don't because I don't want to share all this and have us leave tonight thinking that we all must get married in order to save this country. Because that's not my point. And that's not the point of Romans 1 either. What we see here in this passage is, is that this is the nature of human sin, corrupting and destroying God's good creation. This is showing us. That what we are witnessing in our culture today is God's wrath being revealed. And what this should do is that this should make us realize just how important it is to live out the gospel. To proclaim the truth. 
and to follow the commands of scripture. What we get from here is that homosexuality that we see today, the cultural acceptance of homosexuality did not happen overnight. It began when people first start suppressing the truth of God and begin living according to their sinful desires. And we as a church must remember to uphold the truth, to live God's way. And so what I want then to do is leave you guys with three key applications from this message. Three applications, especially as it relates to us, to this, to this sermon series about pursuing marriage in the sin-driven world. First, this Romans 1 teaches us that we must take God's wrath and our sins seriously. And what this, this account here in Romans 1 that we've just covered is not for us to point fingers upon the society. This account here is to remind us that our greatest problem is not dealing with the sexual revolution. Our greatest problem is dealing with sin, human sin, sin that deserves God's wrath. That is our greatest problem, and we too fall underneath that. We were all born sinners. And yes, some of us, maybe on this Zoom call tonight, are born with the sin of same-sex attraction. But that doesn't make you any more or less a sinner than the rest of us. All of our sins has consequences. But we must never make light of sin. Because when we make light of sin, then we too are contributing to the deterioration of morals and truth in our society. We must never take sin lightly. And what this means is that we must take every sin, even our sinful desires, seriously. We must remember that even our temptations are sinful and we have to repent of that. I wanna encourage you with this statement that this is important to remember that everything that we're dealing with is ultimately a sin issue, meaning it's a spiritual issue. And this is important for the purposes of the gospel. Because when we understand that homosexuality and every other form of sexual immorality is a problem of sin, then that means we have a solution. God gave us a solution in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. It is through him and him alone that we can be saved from our sin, washed clean and redeemed to walk in righteousness. Second, I want us to see that we must value biblical view of marriage, which is defined as heterosexual and complementarian. We must value that highly. And we have to remember that homosexuality is, is it's a direct rebellion against God's created order. So the church must value this biblical view of marriage highly because this biblical view of marriage is what rightly presents the image of God. Man and woman, husband and wife in complementary harmony, all for the glory of God. This is the way that God has ordained for us to live out the image of God it's through this view of marriage. 
But when I say that we must value this kind of marriage highly, I, I want to now just nuance a little bit what I just said, because if you are single, and I, that's for most of you, as a single, someone who's not married, that doesn't mean you're any less the image of God. You are still in you, the image of God. God's created you in his image. And yes, singleness is hard. Singleness is lonely. And I'll spend another message in the series talking about that. But what I want us to see now, to be wary of now, is to be wary of your heart. Be wary of your heart and your singleness. Be wary of your bitterness. Be wary of your resentment. Be wary of the thoughts that flow through your head, the thoughts that says, that I ask this question, what's wrong with me? Why hasn't God given me a husband or a wife? Why doesn't anyone love me? Be aware of those thoughts. Don't let these sinful thoughts take captive of your life. Instead, hold on to truth. Pursue God and you will find rest in him. Pursue God and you will find rest in him. And again, I'll speak more about singleness, but I want us to, all of us, whether we're married or not, to uphold this view of marriage highly because that's so important. The world is watching the church. The world is watching the church because they want to see the church fail. They want to see pastors fall into sexual morality. They want to see marriages fall apart within the church. Divorce to happen so that they can say, look, your traditional ways don't work. Instead, we must continue to fight together. Whether you're single, you're married, we must continue to fight together to uphold a high view of marriage. And that means that when there is marriage conflict, the church should be here to help. Whether you're single or, single or married, we can all help because conflict can be resolved through scripture and we all have scripture in our hands. Can you celebrate and value this view of marriage highly. Lastly, we must date and pursue marriage with honor and purity for God. We must honor, we must date and pursue marriage with honor and purity for the glory of God. And again, for most of you here who are single, I can say with a certain amount of certain, with a fair amount of certainty that, that you want to be married. And that's a good thing. I just want you guys to remember that that's what also unbelievers and those who have struggled with same-sex attraction, they want that as well. What then separates us as Christians from the rest of the world? It comes from an understanding of, of, of an ideology that's built upon a biblical worldview that we are not pursuing marriage. We are not dating just for personal fulfillment but we are pursuing marriage to worship God. And when we do that, that creates then boundaries and principles that informs us how to date. And I wanted to warn us that the dating culture around us is also a contributing factor to this current sexual revolution because the dating culture, as I talked about in my first sermon, is that it's a recent phenomenon. And it's targeted and and it elevates personal satisfaction over commitment. 
So I want us to be careful when we pursue marriage and date because if we are trying to get married to because we believe it will fulfill this loneliness in us, that we believe that all this feeling of unworthiness will suddenly go away because somebody loves us. And we are dating and trying to get married for those reasons. Then those reasons are the same reasons why gay couples are trying to get married. You're just feeding fuel into the fire. Those are the same desires. But if you pursue marriage with the intention of imaging God, of worshiping him, and, and pursuing marriage with the desire to grow and know God more, then that purpose will directly separate you, make you distinct from how the world pursues relationships. To end this message, I want us to now look at Romans 1, verse 17. Romans 1, verse 17 says this, For in it, talking about the gospel, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we see here, that just as in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, here in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And what that means here is that the gospel, the gospel shows us God's righteousness that we desperately need to escape the wrath of God. And if you're here with us tonight and you're not a believer, and you're hearing all this, and you're wondering, what is going on? It first comes, first, it first comes to acknowledgement of who you are. You recognize that you're someone created by God for his glory. And that for your entire life, you have not been fulfilling that purpose. And therefore, you are underneath the wrath of God. And let me give you hope. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down and he died on the cross for your sins. So that when you put your faith in him, the wrath of God, Jesus takes that away from you. He says the wrath of God has been revealed out, that was being poured out upon you before. is now poured out upon him on the cross. And on the cross, he died. And that blood washes away your sin, washes you free of guilt so that you may be righteous. And it says here in verse 17 that a righteous shall live by faith. Meaning those of us who are indeed living by faith, those of us who follow God, who believe in Jesus Christ, who accepted his blood sacrifice for us, we live by faith for God. We live to worship God. We live to portray God to the rest of the world. And we live to, to pursue marriage in a way that honors God and worships him. We live so that the gospel may be displayed through our lives so that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So that the world can see that there is indeed hope 
There is indeed hope that can be found in the gospel alone. So let us then hear this. Let us then obey the commands of scripture and let us live our lives so that the gospel can be proclaimed to the rest of the world so that they may find indeed hope and salvation in God. This is the ultimate purpose of marriage, is to portray God, to give glory to him. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we are able to study your word. And I know there's a lot to cover today, and I feel like I barely covered anything about this topic. But Lord, let us take your word seriously for what it says, because God, you take our lives seriously. You take our sins seriously. And Lord, we are indeed, we are indeed sinners. God, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, Lord, of being disobedient to you. Forgive us, Lord, for our desires that constantly tempts us away from you, that constantly seeks our personal satisfaction rather than glory for your name. Lord, forgive us and help us then. Help us pursue you in a biblical way. Help us pursue marriage in a biblical way. Help us uphold this high view of marriage so that you, Lord, are portrayed. I pray, God, for all of us here that we will recognize the dangers of the world around us. But Lord, I also pray that all of us will find safety in your church, in your word, in Christ alone. Be with us in our discussion. And I pray, God, that we will just be a fruitful time of talking about how you're working in our lives and how we can pursue you in a way that glorifies your name. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.